Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity and Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play. And download archive editions on iTunes. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is Matt Holman, founder of Let's Think, which helps lawyers innovate, create, and collaborate better. Matt is a recovering lawyer and author of Non-Billable Hour Blog. Matt Holman, welcome to Creativity and Play. Thank you. I'm glad to be joining you today. And I know you do a lot more than the legal things we uh, mentioned in the introduction of the show today, so we look forward to talking to you about creativity in, in business and work, and I know you do work with clients as well, but given that we talked about your legal background first and that you're writing a blog that's geared toward that audience and do work with that audience, what does it mean to be doing creativity work as a recovering lawyer? <laughs> well, the, the, the recovering thing is uh, is probably uh, directly create, directly connected to how creative I probably was as a lawyer. I, I found was wondering myself about when, that. I, I found myself when I was uh, when I would work with my clients. I had my own practice for over a decade, and would find myself with my clients talking to them about their business or their estate planning or what have you. But then would find myself more interested in ways for them to get better at what they did. I would talk about. Uh, ways to run their business more effectively, their marketing, et cetera. And what I found is that I started to uh, write and share on uh, my blog. This started about a decade ago as well. That started uh, talking about those things for lawyers about innovation, client service, ways to think differently about the practice of law. And my audience really kind of drove me into doing what I do now. I found myself uh, having a series of uh, interesting serendipitous moments where people would say, hey, can you talk to my firm about this or can you talk to our conference about this and realize there wasn't really many people in the legal industry talking about ways for lawyers to do stuff differently. Uh, Lawyers in particular have lots of time to think about how to do stuff differently for their clients when they're getting paid for every six minutes of their time, but that same business model for them really disincentivizes them from spending time thinking about how to make their business better. And so that's kind of what brought me there. And uh, I like practicing law. I never meant to leave, uh, but found that I love doing what I do now even so much more. And and how how do they react to this topic when somebody who kind of sees the connection to what you just described brings you in to talk to a bigger group? What, what kind of response have they had? You know, the response has been very positive. So much of what I do when I work with a law firm in particular is – collaborative. I am building games or we're working on collaborative exercises uh, to get their people to think together better versus just someone from the front of the room you know, perched behind a podium telling them what to do. Uh, but what I have noticed with lawyers, which is different than just about every other audience, is that having been a lawyer, that brings me the credibility that if I were outside of legal practice, I don't think that I would have with my audience. Lawyers among the only people uh, to refer to the rest of the world as not them. So you don't hear a doctor talk about the patients in his or her waiting room as non-doctors, uh, but lawyers refer to everyone else as non-lawyers. And so having uh, having a law degree, having practice, and having a measure of credibility in the space helps me get them into uh, thinking differently more quickly uh, than if someone were to come in who's not 
who doesn't know their challenges and has not been in practice uh, to try and get them to do things a little bit out of the box. Matt, I know that recently you were at in uh, talking at Creative Alberta, and part of the reason I'm asking about this is to give a boost to Creative Alberta and to say yay for them, but also uh, to ask you to tell us a little bit about your time there and how you engaged people in the conversation about creativity, and also uh, a little bit about uh, what you said there about how you can how to sell creativity to businesses in maybe different ways than some of us in the, the arts and other avenues have done it. Absolutely, Mary Allison. One of the things that uh, kind of got me introduced to the Creative Alberta people in the creative economy space that uh, we both worked some in is that I was running a division of a nonprofit in St. Louis, Missouri called Cook of Biz for about a year. And we were in that organization using arts educators, uh, pairing them with business facilitators to teach business skills. And so, so much of what I learned that I'll share with you came from that rather unique perspective of trying to sell something to business people that they never buy, uh, but we were disguising as something that they always would buy. So we talked about training. And so in Alberta, uh, I was brought in, uh, Haley Simons brought me up, and uh, had a chance to actually help design quite a bit of the conference. And so one of the things that I do know about conferences and people in particular is that they go to conferences to interact with their peers there, not just to listen to someone talk at them. And so we built a lot of interesting modules. One of the things that we did is we had lots of speakers. We had two segments of five to eight speakers apiece, each speaking in six-minute chunks. And so you were able to, in the course of an hour, hear several ideas from all over the spectrum uh, that would then lead you into a workshop that each of those speakers would be leading the following day. And the other thing that we did is that we built in uh, uh, several hours of collaborative creativity for the attendees. So, for example, uh, we had roughly 200 to 250 attendees that were spread across the spectrum of educators, business people, uh, arts leaders, and community and government folks, all purpose with the idea of how do we make Alberta more creative, and frankly, what does that mean for Alberta? What does it mean for jobs? What does it mean for the schools, and so on and so forth? And so we had a two-hour set of exercises where one of the things we did is we had each group uh, try and come up with 99 ways uh, to make Alberta more creative. And if you're an Edmonton Oilers fan, you'll appreciate the significance the number 99 has for fans of Wayne Gretzky. Uh, we also had them solve some very interesting challenges around uh, the oil stands development and how uh, the people in this very thriving industry, how they benefit from and how they can encourage creativity in the workplace and the schools. And so it's this tremendous opportunity to get people in a little bit different format and certainly working with people that might not be across the table from them on a day-to-day -day basis to think in a cross-disciplinary way about how this creativity that we, you know, we call with a capital C, what it really means to the, to the province of Alberta and how it changes the way that everyone interacts and what I think the big takeaway for them, Mary Alice, I know you've seen this in your work, is that an uh, educator across from an oil developer across from an uh, artist realize that they all care about creativity, that it means things to every one of them 
and that it wasn't just a conversation that they needed to be having in the echo chamber of their peers, that it was something they could be talking about with everyone. And and Jonah Lair's recent uh, research and book, Imagine, you know, he talks about the cross-disciplinary hatching of innovation and how important that is, which mirrors both of what we work to do, I think, Matt, though, isn't it? Um, you're, you're absolutely, you're, yes, you're absolutely right, is that the more different kinds of people you bring to the table, the better. Uh, as long as you have the methodology or the ways to get them to interact with each other and let down their guards a bit. And once you can do that, amazing things happen. Can you describe some of the kinds of things that you do with the audiences you work with, and again, like you were describing in the beginning around some of the, the legal groups um, and the sense of being able to take time to develop one's own sense of creativity and play and innovation um, in the workplace, what are some specific things you actually do to help people tap into that and explore that part of themselves and how it relates to their organization? You know, what I've found more than anything else is that you really have to, to get them started. It has to look and feel at least something similar to what they've done before, or at least has a purpose uh, that they're willing to buy off on. So, to so I know if you talk about play in particular, uh, with lawyers it would be hard to say let's play. Uh, no matter how much you can show to them that that's important and that that will change the way they think about how they serve clients and so on and so forth. And so a lot of times they'll start with a purpose. Uh, that is meaningful to them. So it might be how do we serve clients better, or it might be how do we grow our business by 5% this year. And so the moment that you start to get them to understand the outcome at the beginning, you then can fairly simply now start to introduce uh, things like uh, building a, uh, a board game. One of my best activities is uh, we I will raid all of the board games at every single Goodwill and United Way, and we'll take the board games, the orphaned or not, with miscellaneous pieces. I'll throw them together, and I'll have tables telling them our challenge is to help build a teaching tool for young lawyers to be better at practicing. And they'll sign off on that. And so I'll start them then thinking about what are some of the things that young lawyers need to do. And again, it's very easy for them. It's a fairly safe and traditional kind of exercise for them to engage in. And then I'll introduce them to this, this pile of board game miscellaneous pieces and arts and crafts supplies. And I'll tell them, now your job is to build a board game for young lawyers to play in which they can learn about some of the things that we've just described. And then I'll add two or three other things. One is it has to be playable by at least four players. The second is it has to be playable in four hour or in an hour or less. And the third is that it can have no more than seven rules. And once you start to layer in those constraints, and then you add that the winner gets X, Y, or Z, then, then all bets are off and they jump right in because now there's some competitiveness, there's some fun, and they realize why we're doing it and that it has value to them and ultimately to their associates. And so for me, that has always been the secret that I've run across is as long as you can explain why we're doing something and that there will be some sort of output at the end, people are far more willing to jump into those kinds of exercises. Uh, the other thing, and this is true of everybody but lawyers more than most, is that if you give them the chance to talk and engage and, and work together and let them be experts, uh, they're far more likely to 
to put down their guards and start talking with each other versus uh, really wondering why the heck are we doing this and I should could be back at my desk filling time or working on my next project. And, and that, those have been kind of the key takeaways for me as I've done this, is that no matter what the exercise is, make it meaningful to them and give them the understanding of value at the front. And at the very end, they'll say, this was great. And, and you know, I wish we hadn't even worried about the, the setting the table. We should have just jumped right in. Uh, but I know that it wouldn't have worked for them had we not done that. Mary Alice and I have talked a couple times, I think, on creativity and play about the intersection of creativity and, and lawyers and, and that kind of practice. And I think sometimes the perception, whether it's from themselves or others' perceptions of them, is that it's not necessarily a highly creative activity. And yet, of course, when you start to talk about it, it it's kind of what they do all the time is problem solve and look for creative solutions and, and ways to make an argument. Does that connection kind of come up sort of between, on the one hand, perhaps not viewing oneself in a creative way, but suddenly realizing what they do every day is highly creative and therefore they might be able to apply it in different ways and new ways? I, I, a bit. You know, what I've noticed is that lawyers, lawyers will oftentimes, they might identify themselves as non-creative, but you point out exactly what you suggest is that you guys are creative for your clients all the time, and, and there's an aha moment for them where they're like, you know, I am creative. Where the challenge with lawyers works, and it's different than in many other industries, is that their underlying business model is based upon them charging for every six minutes of their day. And so it's far easier to be creative for a client when you can charge them for the time you spend regardless of the outcome. With themselves, if I were to say to them, you know, let's spend an hour being more creative or learning about something, they're immediately going to put a value on that and say, man, is that worth the $700 or $400 or $200 that I'm going to give up for an uncertain outcome that I could make if I were working on the client matter? And that is a, I mean, that's a terrible part of what a law practice is these days with, with billable time is that it disincentivizes people to think about their business. Forget about being creative. Just thinking about ways to do things more effectively. And once you can get them out of that mindset, then then they're able to apply their creativity and they, they are willing to jump into it. But it's an awful big barrier, I guess an awful big chasm to cross because, you know, four hours of creativity with a lawyer is, you know, as many cases up to $2,000 worth of their time you get a room full of lawyers, and now you're, you know, that four hours is a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars or more worth of lost, quote unquote, productivity, even if it can ultimately make up for it in the end. Well, I've been doing some thinking about um, technology and all our online social media, and am inspired to wonder about and find new ways to create. Uh, collaborations and interactions online because I think there's great possibilities there and I wonder what you'd have to say about that in terms of engaging online with people to collaborate in education and business and you know, uh, government. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a contrarian on this. I think that uh, we have had you know billions and billions of dollars have been spent on all of these platforms, things like as Facebook and LinkedIn and other social media platforms, and even some more specific collaborative platforms. And all this money has been spent to try and keep people from having to collaborate in person. And I don't think that we as a species are there yet to be able to have the same 
excuse me, the same level of uh, collaborative ability when we're not interacting face-to-face. And so I really think that so much of what we need to do first is to improve the in-person experiences. Only then, only then are we more capable of building better digital analogs for those. I totally agree. And in five years, uh, things will change dramatically online, and there'll be a totally different platform. <laughs> and, and, and think about it: is that one of the challenges when you think about e-learning is that e-learning has spent, you know, e-learning companies have spent all this time and money trying to duplicate an, a discredited in-person learning experience. So the person from the podium talking to a room full of people uh, doesn't engage their senses and their learning capacity as much as having something more interactive, certainly more playful, and uh, kinesthetic. And so e-learning now has spent so much time trying to duplicate that experience, which isn't very good. And so I really believe that build the in-person experiences better and then, you know, utilize tools to supplement those or to duplicate those once you have a better in-person experience. And that's where when people are removed from the necessity to build a quote-unquote collaboration platform and just focus on engagement, you start to see things like these amazingly immersive storybooks on the iPad. And when they're starting from a blank sheet of paper, the stuff they build is far better. And so I'm someone who I think that online presence is valuable. It allows for communication, but there needs to be some sort of uh, meeting or event or experience in person before you think to the online stuff as being a as being something that replaces it. I think it needs to be something that supplements it and probably more effectively after the in-person experience has happened. Well, how then in the in-person setting can you increase collaborativeness between people? I, I think the, the, the easiest answer is to actually encourage it. There's so many times where I've been to conferences in particular, and I know that you've had, you both have had the same experience, where you realize the people in the room are amazing. They're just like you. They're your peers from all over the world. They get what you do, perhaps in ways that your peers around your community don't uh, when you're back home. And yet so often in those types of events, the only time that you have meaningful time to talk with them is at a quote-unquote networking reception where the music is too loud, where the band is playing, and where there's drinks, and you're lucky to find them by happenstance. And so for me, so much of where this begins is building a conference experience, for example, that is built around people doing stuff together and solving things. And if you have to have content delivery to them, then deliver it to them in small chunks that they can then discuss among themselves. And until we get away from event planners and conference organizers filling in a grid with hour-by-hour-by-hour slots, and depending upon people to speak for that entire hour and then giving people five minutes to move from one hour presentation to another, I don't think we're going to get there. And so there are hundreds and hundreds of things you can do to get people to collaborate, but you need permission to do so, and you need uh, space that that advocates it. And having people side-by-side, shoulder-to-shoulder in a classroom-style Facing the podium isn't it. It's round tables, it's white space, it's ways, places to move around, and it's more time in the hallways for people to kind of have those serendipitous connections uh, when they bump into someone 
uh, versus rushing to answer an email before the next session starts. And I think your example, also, too, of the board game that you okay. described earlier is such a good example of this, and, and your comments a moment ago about the online uh, communities um, and sometimes the disconnect that happens there. The, the combination of those two comments made me think about the work that I'm doing with um, social learning, and our focus tends to be a lot on the on the online part of social learning and how to make use of the informal, collaborative ways we learn, often in our personal lives using social media, but how to be able to do that in the workplace. But at the end of the day, you know, I think it's very much the blend of the informal social learning face-to-face -face as well as where that can happen online. So I thought your board game was such a good example of the non-online example of social learning that in the process of doing it, it becomes a very collaborative exercise. You're learning in a much more informal way, almost, you know, by default and by accident perhaps, as opposed to, you know, here's what you need to learn in the next hour or four hours or whatever it is. Right, and, and one, one thing if I can add is that it, you used to have to go to conferences uh, in particular to learn because that was the only place short of going to a library and checking out an expert's brand new book that you were able to get the content. It wasn't on television. There wasn't an Internet. There wasn't any other way to learn other than to be in the room with the person who taught you. And now what's happening is that that content is available online if you want to have the, pure, the purely the introductory, here's what it is, here's the basic thoughts, here's the theory. That's if it's online. And truthfully, the stuff online is way better than you're going to get in most conferences from the podium. You know, spend a day, you know, trolling through TED Talks, and you're going to be inspired in ways that you've never been listening to a conference. And so what's, what's starting to happen, and it's happening in education, is that in some school districts, and I know that this started in Stanford, they're talking about having students watch the lecture online the night before and do their homework together in person. So they're flipping the entire model because the learning happens when you're working your way through problems and you're helping one another and not just sitting there passively listening to something. And so that's where I think so much of this is going to change, is that the, the technology drives the introduction of the content, but the deep understanding happens socially face-to-face. -face. You know, when it, the questions, Matt, I ask, or I think it's the question, is what do I want to create or what do we want to create? And we, alongside that, or in parentheses, is but what if I mess up? And I think when we get together in person, that's often what people think in those kind of settings where we're asking for engagement and they wonder, am I going to make a mistake? Am I going to be completely out of control? What do you have to say about that? You know, I think that the uh, you know, people are always going to be afraid of making mistakes. That's one of the reasons why doing this is so hard, is that you've got to give them permission to make mistakes. And people are, frankly, much more tolerant of mistake-making in person than they are online. Uh, all it takes is, is, you know, going through some chat, you know, seeing the comments on, a, on various YouTube videos to realize that people are much more civil in person when that person that they're insulting has the ability to reach out across the table and punch them in the face mm -hmm. than they certainly are online. And so I don't think it's as big a problem. It's, it's more the challenge in getting them to buy into what you're doing not that they're afraid to make a mistake as much as they're afraid to do something that has no value. And once you get past that, the mistake-making is much easier to, to deal with, I think. 
Are there things yeah. that sort of, I guess, picking up on that is, and what you've been describing about your work with, with people in the legal field, I, I suspect that making mistakes is a hard thing to do, especially in the billable environment that you described. But on the flip side, are there things out of uh, the, the legal field and the everyday problem solving that are applicable to other people that, that the non-lawyers you mentioned earlier can actually take a lesson away from something that, that's positive around creative thinking and innovation within the legal field and apply it outside of that field? I, you know, so, so there, there are a handful of lessons that I've learned. One is that uh, if lawyers can do it, anyone can do it. It's almost the, the Geico caveman commercials, right? You know, if, if lawyers can get together and be innovative and creative and think differently about their business, just about anyone can because there's there's no industry more risk-averse uh, than lawyers. And the reason why they're risk-averse is that uh, if you do 100 handshake deals, 99 of them are probably going to go okay. But the lawyer sees the one that goes wrong over and over and over and over again. The people don't come into a lawyer's office and say, hey, guess what? We had a handshake deal and everything went great. And so so that's one of those things. The other thing, though, that I really see, and I, I notice this among lawyers, but I think it's true of everyone, is that you know when people try and discourage us from innovative or being creative, they're not doing so out of our best interest. They're doing so out of the fear that we'll do it better than them. And so in the legal space in particular, when it comes to alternative pricing and when it comes to doing things different than this prevailing model, Lots and lots and lots of lawyers float an idea that they want to try to their peers, and their peers say, oh, that will never work. You can't do that. That's impossible. That's not ethical. It's not legal. They'll float all sorts of objections. When, in fact, one of the main reasons those objections, I think, are coming out is because their peers are afraid, man, if they actually figure this thing out, it's going to change the, the business model that I'm in, and I'm comfortable with what I'm doing. And so as you look around and you think about stuff and ways to change, know that, you know, people are going to try and talk you out of it. It's not always because they think it's going to fail. They're afraid it's going to succeed. And I've seen that in the legal business, but I think it's true across every industry. Well, one of the things I appreciate about working with Steve on creativity of play is the fact that we mess around and we step on each other's toes sometimes because we can't see each other and <laughs> in our interviews. And then we get so excited about the topics that we're talking about, including what we're talking about today, creativity and innovation in business. So um, there's a great deal to talk about when you mention fears about what is brought to um, the table here as well, I think, and fears about our about our work and uh, are we really creating what we want and are we on are we creating a life of purpose and that all is in the mesh, isn't it, Matt? It, well, it is. And and one of the things that you mentioned earlier, Mary Alice, was talking about you know, kind of what it takes to sell this stuff to businesses. And when I was at Coco, one of the things that we would talk about is we were doing dance. We had a module where we would use tango to t teach people what it felt like to lead and follow. And while people in the arts, uh, it, when you're talking to them, tango, nothing's, nothing's scarier than dance. And, and we would start our pitch to them oftentimes talking about how the arts were the primary method of learning for all of human civilization for the last several thousand years. You think about the cave paintings in France, think about the 
stained glass windows in the cathedrals of Europe. Uh, think about the, you know, Aristotle or Plato, you know, lecturing people in an engaging way. The arts have always been good for learning, but you can't sell arts to business. When The moment the word art, and I know you guys run into this probably with the word play, it now is something that is less serious. And so when someone would talk about the arts, the moment they they would start to say, well, let's just let's let's forward you to our nonprofit liaison, and we'll see if we can get you on a grant schedule. And so what we really focused on was was using language that the business people understood. And so we were doing training, we were doing leadership training, we were doing collaboration skills, we were teaching people how to be more effective speakers and presenters. And our methodology was the arts. And so even when I'm talking, I have a call today with a law firm about doing a strategic retreat. Uh, as part of that planning, we may bring in an artist, and I might be drawing in the section to literally get them to visualize or picture what they're doing, but I start with a strategy. This is about getting them to be better at what they do and using metrics that they care about. And so and as long to, as... Sorry, oh, sorry to interrupt, but we, we, we have to leave it there, our our. 30 minutes have gone very fast, as always, <laughs> and uh, we just thank you very much for joining us to talk about this today, and I know our conversation is not over uh, in the long term, so thank you again. Uh, Matt Homan is founder of Let's Think and writes the non-billable hour blog. Our theme music is Kindergarten, composed and performed by Jonathan Batiste. You can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com and find Creativity and Play on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dober. And I'm Mary Ellis Long. Thank you so much, Matt, for joining us today. It's been my pleasure.